Hello, I'm here today recording the song diary for Breaking Room, which is track five of The Hallowed Wide. Um, Breaking Room was one of the earlier songs that I had written for The Hallowed Wide. I sort of had the idea like for the the title. Um, Obviously, it's kind of like a play on words for Breathing Room. Um, a little bit different. I can talk more about that later. But um, when I was when I was brainstorming the overall like um, themes of the record and kind of what I wanted to write about, um, I had I had that title and this kind of concept in um, in my notebook. Uh, so when I started writing, it was one of the earlier ones. I I want to say I wrote it like maybe fifth or sixth. Um, where it lands in the record. Um, so it's track five um, for anyone who's tuning in for the first time. The Hallowed Wide is 12 total songs. Um, I, I planned kind of 12 from the beginning. I wanted to be able to release it over a year. And I kind of, you know, I, I thought about um, like what time of year the songs would be coming out a little bit. And, um, you know, I, I sort of envisioned this whole experience. Um, and then I divided the record into four components. So um, four parts represented by this little spell, first descend, then divide, make it hallowed, make it wide. So the record is like, it's almost like a, like a, like a little bit of a guidebook um, for human connection, intimacy. Um, So the first three songs discuss like, um, kind of making a commitment to have better relationships, um, to do a better job understanding others and seeing from their perspectives. Um, so that's, you know, song tracks one, two, and three. Then the middle section, which we're in right now is what I call then divide. Um, and so this section explores like the things that we need to give up, um, in order to be, you know, like selfless members of a relationship or healthier members of a relationship or, you know, whatever. So, um, so breaking room is part of that. And there's, there's one more kind of, uh, chapter in this, in this part and that song will be coming out in May. Um, but, uh, breaking room is, is in the middle of this divide, um, this kind of giving up, like relinquishing things, um, the the previous song in the record closer to you is about sort of relinquishing control um <clears throat> sort of beginning to understand that others are are not controllable and kind of grappling with what that actually means in terms of you know our own kind of desires um and then breaking room sort of like builds on that concept and and introduces a little bit more selflessness um and I'll get into kind of all of that so that's sort of that's sort of where we are you know oriented in the grand context of the story so what I'm gonna do now is um play breaking room for you and once we've all heard it then I'll um break it down for you all the specifics okay here comes breaking room Turn it on you At least I tried to listen when you t- 
That was breaking room. <laughs> it's definitely like the most um, like poppy, dancey thing I've ever written. Maybe. Well, I don't know. As you are from the Masks album is pretty dancey too. But this felt new. And you know, I was born in 1988, and my parents are really young. Um, uh, my dad was 24 when I was born, and my mom was 22. So they were like, you know, teens in the 80s. And I was raised with a ton of 80s music. My dad had this like um, billboard box set from the eighties. And it was like, it was like, you know, 10 songs per CD for like each year of the eighties. And I just like 
you know, sequestered that thing like back in my bedroom and I listened to it so much. So, um, yeah, it's just been some of my favorite music and, and it's really uh, fun for me to have, you know, been able to write and record something that's kind of a little, you know, homage to that time period. So, um, okay, let me talk first about kind of how I started writing this tune. So like I, like I mentioned, I had the idea for the title kind of previously, um, you know, when I was, when I was thinking about the record, the, the themes for the record, I was thinking a lot about these ideas of like stretching, like reaching, you know, elasticity in like our, ourselves. And, um, and I was thinking about kind of like, you know, stretching into breaking or like kind of what these things feel like. Um, and I just had the idea for, you know, breaking room, which, which, you know, it feels like breathing room. I've, I've actually had several people be like, oh, I heard it is breathing room. And I'm like, okay, well think a little harder. Cause it's, it's not, it's breaking room. It's a simple play on words. Um, but anyway, I mean, I like the idea that we, you know, in the same way that if you think of breathing room, it's like, I need to go somewhere and just like take a few deep breaths. Um, and that's maybe something that you'll do if you need like, um, if someone's really bothering you and I feel like breaking room is just like, it's kind of similar, but like a little bit different. Like I need somewhere that I can go and, and be a little broken and kind of go through this like breaking process, breaking habits, breaking down my own kind of pride and assumptions. So it, it felt like a beautiful concept to me and something that I knew I would have, you know, a lot to say about, cause this is something that I feel like I've personally experienced quite a bit. Um, <clears throat> In terms of the the writing, um, at the time that I wrote this, so I, I've mentioned this before several times in these series and kind of even previously um, when I was working on Masks and I, I did this for my first album, Embark 2, which was released in 2008. But every time I'm working on a new album, I make like a spreadsheet <laughs> and um, on the on on like the left column are the titles or the tracks, the tracks of the songs. And um, then on the like top row are different parameters about the songs. Like what key are we going to be in? What's the tempo? What's the groove? Is the mood kind of dark or light? Um, and I like to conceptualize these things this way so that over the course of the whole record, there's a beautiful variety of different feelings. And, you know, my hope is that the listener really feels like they've kind of been on a journey. Like I want the listener to feel, you know, similarly moved, you know, like you would be after you watch a movie, like, or read a book, like it's really taking you through like different things. So I knew where I wanted this song to fall on the record. Um, <clears throat> I knew kind of what tempo I wanted. I knew that I wanted it to be an E minor. Um, and part of that was because I just hadn't used any kind of chords from, from that key really yet. Um, I felt like it would feel nice coming from, you know, what had come before. Um, so I started with that and then I had a couple of like reference tracks in mind. I was thinking a lot about, um, this great song called, um, Narcissus is back by Christine and the Queens. I was thinking a little bit about a couple of glass animals songs, which I can't remember the titles, but from, um, I think it's their second album. The one that has like all of the like each song is almost like a different character. Um, it's the one that has like Poplar Street on it. I, I forget the title. Um, and then I was also thinking a lot about Kate Bush's song, Running Up That Hill, um, which is such a gorgeous song and kind of just wanted to sort of pull, you know, some of the essences of, of those other songs, um, you know, in, into the inspiration of this piece. Um, 
so, um, so first I wanted to come up with a chord progression. That was kind of the first thing that I did, um, in terms of actually writing the piece. And I wanted it to be kind of this crooked chord progression. Um, there's, there's sort of a similar harmonic rhythm in that Christine and the Queen song that I mentioned, where there's like two chords, there's like two beats for the first chord and then six beats for the second chord two beats for the third chord and then six beats again for the fourth chord. So it's still a four chord progression, but it's not symmetrical. Um, and I like the way that that kind of feels, you know, I'm always trying to find, you know, symbolism throughout all the different steps. So I like the way that that feels in terms of like, it's almost like a little bit of stagnant, but then like kind of a, like a lot of movement quickly and then, and then stagnant again. And I wanted to use this chord progression for like the vast majority of the song. Um, the chord progression changes in the pre-choruses and then also in the bridge, but otherwise that little loop that I just, um, laid out is, is what's going on in the song. So all the verses and the choruses are just that same chord progression. Um, and then I sort of mapped out the form of the song. Like I wanted there to be four total verses, two pre-choruses, chorus bridge. Um, so I kind of had like a basic roadmap. Um, and then I wanted to write, uh, the chorus first, cause I knew that I, that I needed, um, the title to be kind of highlighted and I felt like writing the chorus first would sort of give me, um, you know, like the handhold that I needed on the song in order to kind of flesh it out more with the verses and kind of make the story come to life. Um, so I was thinking, um, I wanted to say, uh, for those that are listening, I, I don't know, I don't know who you are. You know, I've mentioned this a few times, but I can see that people are listening. I can see numbers and I just don't know who's out there. So I want to make sure I give plenty of context, but I keep, um, I have a, like a private, you know, Facebook group for like fans for kind of deeper conversations, things that are more personal and less kind of public and forward facing. And, um, lately before I've been releasing or recording these song diaries, I've been asking the group, you know, who are kind of my like favorite fans and like, you know, the, the people who love my music the most, um, whether there are any questions that they want me to ask. And one of the questions that was asked, um, was by another musician who I just met and who I've had such a joy getting to know kind of digitally. Um, his name is Jaron Davis. And he asked, um, the melody for the chorus of this song is fantastic as is the melody throughout. My question is, how did you write the melody for this song? What was the process. So this is, this is the time to talk about that. Um, so I was thinking a lot about, um, Kate Bush's song running up that hill and the way in which her melody like covers so much range and it will like drop really low and then suddenly kind of go really high. And it feels to me like when I listen to that song, I get kind of like a, a really visceral feeling of like being kind of emotionally unhinged. Like it almost feels a little bit like how a panic attack feels or like a sort of desperate kind of, um, you know, grappling, like what can I do? And it's a feeling that I felt really frequently as a child, um, you know, dealing with, uh, my, my parents who were both, both pretty volatile and pretty, um, verbally abusive. There was a lot of like yelling in my childhood and, I'm such a little problem solver. That's just like kind of the essence of my personality. I always felt like there's got to be something I can do to like explain better, you know, where I'm coming from or why, you know, I w I'm not trying to be like a bad child. You know, even from the time I was really pretty little, I was always like presenting my case and I would get, you know, it was like a, it was like a rise and fall of like 
let me be like very pragmatic and like lay this out and, um, you know, to articulate what is what actually happened and then feeling totally out of control and totally desperate and totally like, why won't you believe me? You know, or why, why just feel completely helpless and yeah, running up that hill just feels like that feeling to me. So I, I wanted to capture that. And I had the sense that that kind of like big jump might feel that way. So, um, so Jaren, um, you might not know this about me, but I, I have, um, I, I have like a whole songwriting method. I actually like built a songwriting course um, at the beginning of the pandemic when all my kids were canceled. I've been developing this songwriting method and a method of kind of teaching songwriting uh, with my students for, um, you know, about uh, like a little over 10 years now. Um, and I and I think pretty, you know, um, structurally about melody. So I'll think of it in a couple different ways. Like one of the ways that I think of it is by like shape, like is the melody ascending, descending? Does it kind of rise and then fall, you know, even farther below the starting note? Is it sort of like a flat line and it's more based on rhythm? Um, I'll also think of the melody in terms of like form. So like, you know, where, where are like little A, like section A fragments and then like the section B fragments and how do we sort of, um, combine them and put them together? So, so when I was writing Breaking Room, I knew that I I wanted to have like an A-A-B-A structure in the melody. Part of that is that uh, I, I knew this melody, this chorus melody needed to be 16 measures in order to be long enough. So, you know, I'll do this when I start writing. I'll like think of how long I want the song to be, like minutes and seconds. Um, I know the tempo. I know the chord progression. And then, you know, I want to avoid kind of writing myself into like a weird pickle where like, you know, I finish the song, like the emotional arc has like, you know, completed, but the song is like either too short or way too long. Um, and, you know, I keep it pretty flexible, but I, but I kind of had the idea that this chorus needed to be 16 measures or the song wasn't going to kind of work like I wanted. And when I have to write a 16 measure chorus, I often like to make sure that my, um, my melody fragments are four measures long. And then I do an AABA structure, which I just think feels really good. And it's a great way to make a 16 bar chorus feel um, like it's not repetitive, even though there's quite a bit of like a material. Um, so I had that idea in mind and I knew that I wanted my, my a fragment to be like really kind of busy and I needed it to be four bars. Um, so I had that kind of in mind. Um, <clears throat> I knew that I wanted the first lyric to be, I need a little breaking room. So when I had had the idea previously to write a song called breaking room, I knew that kind of my like hook in the chorus lyrically would be, I need a little breaking room. And I wanted that to be in a part of my range that would be like really powerful kind of where, you know, my voice might sit if I were like kind of yelling or like feeling like a bit kind of impassioned or a little desperate or like a little bit kind of, you know, not totally in control. So I I wrote that little chunk first. I need a little breaking room, which sits like right kind of in my, my mid high range. Um, and then I kind of, and then I, and then I kind of wrote the lyrics, um, it's a lot to ask, but will you wait for me while I do? And I'll talk about those more in a second. But I knew that I wanted that like while I do to be really low. And then for the connectors of the melody. So I had like the first little bit and the last little bit. And I knew I wanted the middle to be kind of chaotic. So I tried a bunch of different things, you know, with the chords. I kind of looped, you know, um, like a rough draft of those lyrics, um, 
starting and ending in the same place and trying to connect the middle in a bunch of different ways until I kind of found something I liked and then just recorded that so I wouldn't forget. Um, and then kind of focused on the lyrics uh, because I knew I would need like three A sections. So I'll kind of switch gears and talk about the lyrics now. <clears throat> I really wanted this song to feel vulnerable. Um, my personal experience with these kinds of topics are, are kind of twofold. Um, you know, I feel like it's really important to me as a person to try to understand what other people are going through. I think, again, that stems from kind of my childhood and always feeling very misunderstood and very kind of misinterpreted and like just no one was kind of imagining things from my perspective. Um, no one was kind of seeing me as my own individual person, even as a child. I, I think I felt pressure to be like an extension of my parents. And it was really clear to me, even as a little kid, that that just was simply never going to happen. I just was different. I just was different from them. They're really extroverted. I have just been extremely introverted since I was a little kid. Um, I have a, a friend from the podcast who said, uh, he's an introvert with extrovert skill sets. And I feel like that too. And it's because I was raised by extroverts and my family in general is very extroverted. Um, I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't competitive. I didn't really like sports. I was kind of like artsy and, you know, a little kind of in my own head. Anyway, for all these reasons, I just felt misunderstood and, and never want anyone else to feel like that. So, you know, the older that I get, the more that I'm always trying to kind of search my own, you know, biases and assumptions and try to understand people like through their lens. Like, and it, you know, I don't know, there's a lot of nuance here. I don't know that it always means that you need to agree with someone's lens, you know, especially if someone is um, not safe for you to be around, but to at least try to understand like where someone is coming from, it just feels kind of like a win-win. Like there's nothing to lose there and potentially everything to gain. So, <clears throat> You know, for me, I really started um, grappling with these kinds of things when I went to college. I grew up in a really homogenous community in Mesa, Arizona. Almost everyone that I knew growing up was white um, and, you know, fairly wealthy or upper middle class, really pretty educated. Almost everyone I knew growing up was Mormon. Um, there were some kids from um, the... Uh, reservation right outside of the city um, who went to my high school. I was friends with a couple of those kids in elementary school and it really became like kind of clear to me in junior high that that things were kind of segregated. And back then I didn't have the tools or the vocabulary to even begin to kind of investigate that. But when I went to college, I was in a much more like diverse um, environment and, and definitely more racially diverse than anything I'd ever experienced. And um, it really threw me for a loop. And I felt kind of, I grappled with some guilt, you know, like I didn't know, I, I felt bad that like I, I didn't, I was so illiterate with those things. And I wanted to kind of like get that feeling off of myself, um, which would, you know, lead me as like a person in my early twenties to maybe have thoughts like, you know, we don't need to see color, you know, thinking that we're kind of post-racial, um, which of course, you know, is not the case. Um, so, you know, I think like by the time I was, I had been in college, you know, a couple of years, I started, um, you know, asking more questions to my friends who are people of color and investigating more. And, and, you know, it took a lot of humility. I think like I'm better at this now. I don't, I don't get, you know, my 
my panties in a bunch now when I find that I'm wrong about something, but learning that skill was difficult. Um, and, and because, you know, I've been, I've been, um, thinking in this way now for, you know, the better part of like 15 years, um, I know that like when I'm presented with an idea or a perspective that kind of instantly hits me as like, well, that doesn't seem right. Or like, you know, it gives me like a, like a little, you know, negative feeling. I know that like that cannot be the place to stop. That's the beginning. That's where we begin investigating. And, and I'm, I think I've gotten pretty good at like just accepting what I hear and then, uh, keep, you know, continuing to kind of research on my own until my feelings match what, um, you know, other people are telling me about what their experiences are. Um, for me personally, a lot of these conversations have been more, um, along the lines of race when I've been in the position of, um, like needing to be the one who learns or understands better or, um, yeah. Uh, of course, these conversations also apply to a lot of other things. Um, I, I personally just haven't felt as um, confused about LGBT issues. That that has always felt a little bit more clear to me, even since I was a kid. Um, but certainly I feel like I have had to learn, um, have had to learn more about uh, like trans rights and, you know, kind of um, more nuanced perspectives. So I find that these skills... Um, you know, they serve me well in, in terms of being a member of a global family. All this, all this is just kind of context. But when I was writing Breaking Room in particular, I was thinking about something quite a bit more personal, which is conversations that I've had with Andrew, my husband, in our marriage. Um, when we got married, we were both really active in the LDS church. I had some really intense, like, feminism hangups. Like I had really, really low self-worth as a woman. Um, I I'd had so much shame about the fact that I was like working on a master's degree. I was in the middle of grad school when we got married. Um, I felt super, super guilty for being in school. I felt guilty for working. Um, I had, I had more money than Andrew and I made more money than Andrew for like the first um, like six years of our relationship, um, seven maybe. And I felt like really guilty and kind of apologetic about that. Um, you know, I took on like a lot of the kind of invisible labor in a household right away, even though I was in grad school, I was working a lot more than he was working at that time. You know, it was just messy. It was, it was bad. Um, and you know, none of that was really his fault. Although of course he has internalized like patriarchy problems because we were raised Mormon and we also just live in the United States at this current time. Um, but you know, as, as, I started to kind of get better and, and heal and like grapple with more of those things and have a better self-worth. Um, we had to have a lot of difficult conversations as a partnership about, um, the ways in which things had gotten really imbalanced. And Andrew had a lot of shame about that. I think, um, he felt like, you know, if I would be asking him, like, if I would be pointing something out, like, Hey, this really isn't cool. Like this is really, you know, pretty imbalanced and, and it, it doesn't, doesn't feel right to me. He would kind of take that as like, you know, he'd be surprised by it and then kind of feel like, well, I'm not the kind of person who's a bad husband or like, I'm not the kind of person who's like sexist. You know, I don't think those are things that, you know, 
he would have ever, you know, claimed or, or put on part of his parts of his identity. Um, and that's, of course, because like these things are subconscious, like nobody wants to kind of wrap their identity around being, you know, racist or homophobic or sexist. Of, of course, of course. Um, you know, but because we love each other and, you know, I had quite a bit of patience with him and did, you know, a really good job articulating things. Um, anyway, a lot of what's here in this song is is kind of based on really, really vulnerable conversations that Andrew and I had. And a lot of these particular um, phrases that are especially in the verses are things that, you know, Andrew more or less kind of has had said to me, you know, kind of it was this was such a long time ago now. But um, but still, you know, feels pretty um, tender. And then the chorus is more like what I think I I wish he would have said, like I, how I wish he would have handled it back then. Um, I have all the forgiveness in the world for like the, you know, 20 somethings that we both were. There was, you know, a hell of a lot of trauma that, that we were um, working through together, mo- mostly a lot mine, my trauma um, and and also just trauma from being in, um, you know, a religion that has quite a bit of fundamentalism and and um you know I know that everybody kind of uh experiences Mormonism a little differently but my experience with it was was pretty um fundamentalist and and pretty uh just not great (laughs) like my childhood had just a lot of um you know just toxic kinds of things woven in and all intertwined with uh, religion so anyway um all this to say like that's kind of what we were dealing with but but this chorus it feels really precious to me this is this is not the kind of conversation that Andrew and I had but what I think is a sort of a template for a better um a better approach so if you imagine that you have been in the wrong you've been inadvertently hurting someone that you really care about. Um, not on purpose, you know, just kind of having an incomplete, um, understanding or, uh, you know, lacking a skill set, lacking literacy. Um, that's really hard. It's a really hard to be in a position where you, you know, you're a good person, you know, you have good intentions and you're being told that you have caused harm and are causing harm. It takes a hell of a lot of humility. So to say, okay, listen, I need a little breaking room. Like it's true. I need, I need some time to kind of fall apart and put myself back together. It's not going to be easy for me. And it's not your fault. You don't owe me anything. I need a little breaking room. It's a lot to ask, but will you wait for me while I do? Which isn't, I, I, I think of this with a lot of grace and I, I really understand that, um, you know, for, for minority groups or for groups who've been, um, you know, systemically like burdened, um, that there is no like obligation there. Um, and I think that's part of this messiness of like, what, what is love? It's tricky and I don't have all the answers. Um, but I like the idea of, you know, with so much humility, with no sense of entitlement, you know, asking your loved one, like, can you please be patient with me? Like, wait for me while I do it, while I break myself down, while I root these things out. Then the second, the second line, I need a little breaking room. It's a lot so fast, which is saying, you know, I don't really get it. I don't quite understand, but I won't give up till I'm through. 
um, which also just feels like really human on both sides, like from the perspective of someone who needs to learn and who's trying to learn. Um, gosh, it's a lot. It's a lot. There's a lot going on. I, I really am struggling to wrap my mind around this, but I promise you, I won't give up until I get it. I won't give up until I understand. Um, and then the last line is my favorite. First, I need some breaking room and I'd hate to ask, but will you hold my hand while I do, which feels just so tender. And it, and again, like it can't be something that we feel entitled to, but I do feel like the act of kind of asking, like, will you hold my hand through this? Like, will, will you kind of, I, I really could use like your care. I, I don't need your labor, but like, you know, I just, can I feel love from you? while I'm, while I'm doing this work, but I do think it's important, you know, the work needs to be done regardless of whether, um, you know, the person you're kind of doing that work for, um, or the, or the people you're doing that work for don't have the bandwidth for you. Um, but this, you know, this is kind of from the perspective of a more intimate relationship in which case, like hopefully, you know, that person can lend a hand. Um, so back to Jared's question, then when I was going to write that beeline, I just wanted it to contrast. Um, so where the A fragments are really kind of soaring and there's a lot going on, they're kind of chaotic, using a lot of range, that beeline is almost a, stra a straight line if you were to kind of chart it out. It hardly moves at all. Um, I want to show you that I'm making room, which I, I really am um, tickled by like breaking room, making room. It's really nice. Like I'm making room. I'm making room in my heart, in my mind for these new ideas. I don't have anything to prove. I'm not trying to win. Um, and I can be someone you can turn to. I, I want that. I want to be that. I want to be someone who's safe for you. Um, but first I need some breaking room. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm so into the idea that people are messy. I'm really into patience. I'm really into forgiveness. Um, you know, there are boundaries and limits to these things. But, you know, as the beginning of a conversation, I just think this is a beautiful way to begin. I just couldn't feel more conviction about that. Um yeah, it feels, it feels just important. Um, and I know it's, I know it's a pop song and I'm just like one gal, you know, with one set of experiences, but, um, but this, this stuff feels important to me and, and I hope so much that it, you know, I don't know, gives a light bulb or like touches something, you know, for, for anyone, for someone who's listening. Um, okay. So that's the choruses. Um, the verses are, are, the verses are my favorite. Like I, I, I've got the chorus how I wanted it. And then I wanted to, like I said, really flesh out the story in these verses. Um, and these again are kind of inspired by things that Andrew kind of said to me or, you know, feelings that I felt kind of coming from him. Why do you have to put me on the spot? Um, you know, which is kind of gaslighting. It's kind of like shifting the blame, you know, turning it around. Why did you put me on the spot? Even though, you know, I'm the person who's doing something wrong. You got me in the headlights, got me caught in the act. Um, you know, nobody wants, nobody likes being put on the spot or being called out. Um, and I, and I want to, you know, show a little grace for that too. That is hard. Um, even if you're in the wrong, it's just, it's, it's difficult to be called out like that. So, you know, I don't know. I want to, I, I want to leave room for that. Um, especially, you know, if I'm thinking about like my darling husband who I love so much, who's been, you know, a better, um, friend and, uh, and, and, 
you know, trusted other to me than anyone in my life. Um, and to have someone that I love so much be feeling kind of cornered and small, um, when I'm kind of asking for, you know, equality, um, that was a tricky thing for me to feel. And I, and I really do have so much empathy for it. Um, I'm digging through my mind for a new excuse, wondering how to turn it on you. And that also is something that I experienced so, so much growing up. I mean, this is something that I have just spent my life in this feeling of like, you know, my mom, like I would say something to her and I, I know she knew she was wrong. I know she knew it. She was a smart woman, um, but just never quite had the, um, you know, the self-worth, I think, to own that. Like, she couldn't do it. Um, and, you know, I don't know. Again, I just, I have a lot of empathy for it. It feels really personal and really tender to me. Like, nothing in this song is flippant. Um, and imagine, you know, how scary it was for me to have to, like, <laughs> how much bravery it kind of took for me to approach Andrew about these kinds of things, knowing how that had gone with my mom, knowing how that had gone with my dad. Um, and feeling like Andrew is a person I simply cannot lose. Um, but feeling like our relationship is worth that improvement and worth that difficulty. And I'm, in retrospect, I'm so glad that I had that trust in him. And, you know, I know he's not, he's not my mom, <laughs> you know, he's not my dad. Um, but, you know, to have these kinds of moments, like first, you know, hit to, to sit through and watch those first reactions from him of being defensive looking for an excuse, turning it around on me, kind of blaming things on me. Um, that was really hard. Um, and it was hard for him too. Um, so, you know, digging through my mind for a new excuse, wondering how to turn it on you. We've all been, I mean, I think the vast majority of us have been on the receiving end of those kinds of sentences and sentiments. And I think a lot of us have, have been on the, the, um, the offensive end of those as well. Um, then the next verse, at least I tried to listen when you told me, um, this, at least I, you know, like now, like Andrew and I have been through enough together that I'll, I'll just say to him, like, don't at least me, don't at least I, me like, you know, take responsibility. And, and I hope that he feels like he can say that kind of thing to me too. I think the simple fact that I have had kind of more trauma and have spent you know, years and years now in therapy. Um, I have, I have good, you know, kind of quick literacy for these things in a way that not everybody does. And I'd really try to bring that, um, to my marriage and all my relationships and to my artistry as, you know, a, a service. I, I think it's something that I've really practiced and that, you know, for plenty of reasons, I understand pretty well, I think. Um, anyway, so that I, t I take that as kind of like my you take it as like a, a bit of a gift and maybe a responsibility. Um, but yeah, this, this whole, at least I, it's such a hurtful thing. It sounds like a nice thing, but it's such a distraction. It's such a, you know, pulling the harm away from the person who's actually feeling harm. Um, at least I tried to listen when you told me, which again implies like, I didn't really listen, but I, at least I'm trying. Um, don't you think I deserve a little credit for that? Um, which again is kind of just like, it's this, it's this, you know, kind of manipulation and we all do it. I mean, we are selfish, you know, primates, like we're, we're a violent primate and overcoming those. Um, like I think these kinds of responses are, are the default that we come by honestly. Um, and working to override them is really difficult. So, and again, I really wanted to set these verses up with an appropriate level of anger, 
um, like kind of some toxicity so that that chorus will feel, um, yeah, more authentic. Uh, I'm dealing with my own set of problems too. Like, well, you're not the only one with problems and maybe even just as many as you, um, which, you know, I don't, you guys don't need me to, to say more about that. Like we know kind of what those phrases are. Um, and then, uh, I'm trying to think if I should talk about verses three and four next or the pre-choruses. Um, so yeah, I'll talk about the pre-chorus. So the pre-chorus is suddenly like the, the chords are different, which I hope feels like a real shift in emotion. Um, that's certainly on purpose. Um, like, oh, sorry, hold on. And I, I wrote the intro to this pre-chorus. It's like, oh, oh, I need to take a breath, which feels kind of this like, hold on, hold on. Like this sort of breathless, breathless, like, you know, um, stilted speech pattern, like, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I'm hold on. Uh, I need a second. I need to take a breath. Can we take a step back? Take a breath. Take just one step, step back. This is such a mess. And in this moment, I'm realizing it's not your mess. I want to give you my best, but I'm realizing in this moment, I don't know how. So I think that's a really important step of like, you know, going from being defensive to being able to say like, okay, wait, hold on. This isn't worth it. I do love you. I care so much about you. And I, and I'm, I'm sort of getting it that I'm really in the wrong here, but I don't quite get it. And I'm feeling a little attacked. I'm feeling embarrassed. I'm feeling ashamed. Um, I'm feeling defensive and I need to go, I need to go somewhere where I'm not going to hurt you and figure all this out. I need to sort this out. Um, and again, you know, so that's something that, you know, the, the speaker in this piece is saying, like, I will do this alone. I will do this work. You don't have to do it for me, but please be patient with me. Please keep loving me. Um, okay. Then verse two is verse, sorry, verse three and four are a little bit more humble. I feel like they're so precious. They mean so much to me. And I hope they are hitting some of you in the heartstrings too. I never mean to make the same mistakes. Um, which like that intentionality, I think it does matter, but it doesn't matter as much as the actual harm being caused. Um, and that's such an important thing to realize, but I never mean to make the same mistakes. You don't owe me any patience while I figure this out. I don't know why I can't get it through my head. And I don't know why I said what I said. That was a mean thing to say, or that was a harsh thing to say. It was a horrible thing to say. I, I don't know why. I don't know what's going on with me. I don't know why this is so hard for me to understand. Um, verse, the final verse, I know it's stupid, but I feel a little wounded. Um, which also like, you know, I just feel like a lot of tenderness for that feeling, like, you know, feeling like you're being attacked when you're being called out for something that you've done. Um, that's so loud to hurt, you know, it just can't be the end of the conversation. I know it's stupid, but I feel a little wounded. I know I shouldn't when I'm the one who's caught in the act. I'm the one that did something wrong. So I shouldn't feel bad, but I do feel bad. And I'm, I guess what I'm saying is, of course you feel bad and it's fine. You know, we deserve grace for those kinds of things. We just, it just can't be the end. And then I love this line so much. I sold myself a one-sided view for so long it's terrible to look you in the eye and admit I'm wrong, but that's what we have to do. You know, we, we have to do it. Um, and we all are selling ourselves a one-sided view. If you're in a minority, um, group, you know, you, you, you are going to have a two-sided view. I think that's something that a lot of people who are in a majority don't understand. Um, when you're in a minority, you, you know, your own view, 
but you also know the majority of you. You know it really, really well. And in fact, often you know the majority of you better than you know your own view. Um, you know, like the the like a white perspective is something that people of color they know they get it. You know, um, because it's it's a it's a white um, structure that we're in, and everything is viewed through that lens. So so it's it's obvious. Um, I'm not saying it's like right, but I think I think I think I'm right that that's true. And certainly, like women understand like a male perspective, and we see ourselves through a male gaze. We see the whole world through a male gaze, unless we do really really hard work to um, bring our own um, our own actual perspectives, you know, to the forefront and and find ways to articulate them and to own them. Um, so, I mean, I guess in that way, like those of us that are in any kind of minority and if you're in one, it, you know, obviously it doesn't mean you're not in a majority somewhere else. I think we all have work to do. Um, so, you know, anyway, I think in some ways we probably all, we, there probably are places where each of us does have kind of a one-sided perspective, maybe not in these kind of global ways, but in a particular relationship you know, if the person you're with has experienced, has a different background from you, et cetera, et cetera. It's terrible to look you in the eye and admit I'm wrong, but just think of how much love that is. Like looking someone right in the eye and saying, this is my bad. That's what's, what's greater evidence of love than that. Um, and then the second pre-chorus is almost the same. Um, take a breath. Can we take a step back? Take a breath. Take just one step back. Such a mess, such a mess. And it was never your mess. Um, which I, it's a little distinction, but I feel like it's important. Pre-chorus one says, it's not your mess. Pre-chorus two says it was never your mess. Um, this was never your fault. I'm own, I'm taking responsibility for all of the times that this has gone wrong. Um, and then, okay. So I'm trying to think, I don't, I, I think in the verses, in terms of the melody, I really was just trying to kind of write, write from that place of like, you know, when you're actually feeling on the spot, you're actually feeling kind of heightened and your heart's racing. Um, your voice can get kind of a lot of inflection. Like your voice can be, you know, modulating like quite a bit. So I wanted to try to capture that. And then the pre-choruses are kind of, like I mentioned before, they have like all these kind of little punctuated rests, um, because that almost feels to me like, okay, hold on, hold on, stop, 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 wait a second. Um, so I, I wanted the pre-courses to feel like that. Okay, then um, all that's left is the bridge, which again feels so tender to me. The bridge has new chords. Again, it's uh, there's um, a brand new chord introduced, which is this G major chord. And it, after we've been in E minor for so long, the G major chord feels so full of hope. Um and I wrote the bridge up in my head voice, which I think feels really humble and really kind of fragile. Um, please be gentle with me while I'm breaking open, while I learn to see we're all a little broken and we all need a little breaking room. We don't need to take the fact that we need to change. We don't need to take it on our identity as, you know, I'm a bad person. I'm the kind of person who does things wrong. We all are the kind of person who does things wrong. We all need, um, we all need breaking room. Um, but I love this idea of, you know, please be gentle with me. I'm really, really trying. I'm committing to try. This isn't an apology. This isn't a deflection. Um, or rather it's not an excuse. It's not a deflection, but, but I am also feeling fragile, um, and please be gentle with me. I'm while I, while I figure this out. Um, and then 
I'll just point out in case you guys haven't heard it in the very last chorus, that bridge line comes in um, again. So the, the baby, please be gentle with me is happening over that last chorus, kind of an overlay um, that we're feeling those things at once at the same time that we're saying, I need a little breaking room. Please wait for me. Please hold my hand. Please be gentle with me. And then the very last line of the song combines those two. Um, so the previous line I need a little breaking room and I hate to ask, but will you hold my hand while I do? And then the last time, baby, please, won't you hold my hand while I do? Um, you know, it, it can't feel more personal. It can't feel more tender. And the fact that it's kind of like, um, you know, couched in this like funky, like eighties thing, just like, feels great. It feels so good. Okay. I've got a couple of other questions that I wanted to answer. Um, Annie, uh, wrote, okay, I'm just listening to this for the first time and I'm starting my second round. Um, I'd like to hear about your production decisions. I've spent so much time with this song through your live version. Um, I released the live version like almost a year ago now. And, um, Annie has been telling me since then that she just loves it. And I appreciate that so much. Okay. And then I think there's a follow-up question here. She said, um, I think it might be interesting in the diary to discuss why you chose to do various versions live and produced why you chose to release just the produced on streaming services. Um, why not add the live version on streaming services? Mm, I think that's basically it. Um, yeah. And I'm happy to answer those things. Okay. So first of all, um, about my production decisions. So J Jed, Jed Jones is the producer that I hire for these things. Um, and he, he makes most of the production decisions. Oh, actually really quickly. Um, I did get another question in my email from, um, Robbie, who's like a longtime fan. And he also asked me to talk about like, what's the recording process like, um, and kind of what do we use to record? So the way that Jed and I do it, and this, this is fairly common, but you know, different, uh, producer and songwriter pairs do it in different ways. But the way that, the way that Jed and I have done it is I write all the songs first. So sometimes the songwriting happens kind of at the same time as the production kind of in the studio and everyone's kind of writing together. Um, I just, I don't prefer to do it that way. I kind of feel pretty protective over the writing process and really, I really, I really don't want anyone else's decisions to be involved in that. So, um, so I, I wrote the song by myself, um, in my little studio. Uh, and then once I had written the whole record, um, I called Jed and said, Hey, I've got another one for you. Um, let's make it happen. So the first thing we did was we, we went into the recording studio and I had all my tempos. So when, um, some of you probably know this, but when you go to record, um, you record to a metronome and that makes it easy to kind of edit and line all the parts up. So, um, so Jed, uh, put the, the, I had my headphones on and we put the metronome click in my ears. And the first thing I did was I recorded the scratch piano, which is basically like a scaffolding for then Jed to, um, build the synthesized track up. So I sat down at the piano with a, with a microphone, um, on the piano and with the metronome first, I just recorded the piano and I did that for the whole record. So I sat down and played, uh, 11 songs. The, the last song, there's a little bit of a different thing, which I'll tell you guys about when we get there, it won't be till October. Um, Anyway, and then after I had recorded the piano, um, then I, I got up and, and stood up and went to the vocal mic and um, Jed played back my piano tracks that I had just recorded and I sang a scratch vocal over those. Um, and that was, we did that in like September of 2020. Um, and then Jed spent about six months with the tracks. Um, it, it wouldn't always be that long, but 
I we I wasn't in a hurry and in fact I I really didn't want to record until April because I had just gotten um braces put on my teeth and uh I felt really awkward like I I had I didn't quite feel like I knew how to like sing with them um and I really wanted the record to be right you know investing a lot of time and money and so I told Jed like let's get the scratch we we recorded the scratch vocals a week before I got my braces on and then um yeah. And then waited a little while. So, um, so in terms of production, like Jed started out with those two things, the scratch vocals and the scratch piano. And then I also gave him a couple of reference recordings. So, um, the ones I mentioned before that Christine and the Queen song, I told him, you know, I like these kinds of sounds. I'll frequently give Jed, um, notes like, um, I like the drums from this recording. I like kind of how they sound or like, I really like how the vocals are produced and edited on this other track. So I'll give him a bunch of ideas and then he works up kind of a, a synthesized track. So Breaking Room in particular, it's almost completely synthesizers. So Jed programmed all the drums and um, made all of the synthesizer sounds. The only like real instruments that are on it are, are me singing lead vocals and a ton of background vocals. And then Rob Bobby Connolly on guitar. Um, and maybe I'll talk a little bit more about adding guitar in a minute. Um, so, you know, Jed will email me and be like, hey, I've got a new uh, rough draft in our shared Dropbox folder. Check it out. And then I'll listen and send back some notes um, and be like, you know, I really like this. Like, this isn't quite right yet. I'll maybe send some new reference recordings. Um, and then once the track is like, starting to have the right kind of character it's like not you know by any means finished but it's 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 uh it's on the right like branch um then uh we'll go into the recording studio and i'll record the lead vocals um and if um robbie if you have more questions about that let me know i'd be happy to answer anything i think um, I, I think I'm answering your question, but if I'm missing anything, just let me know. Um, but I'll record the lead vocals and then the background vocals. And then at that point, we'll kind of decide what else do we need? And we decided that this track needed a real guitar. Um, Jed is friends with Robbie Connolly, who um, is just a fantastic guitar player here in Utah. Um, uh, he tours with the Killers now. So I think the Killers original guitar player um, like kind of retired from the band and Robbie tours with the killers. So it was, it was really cool to have him come and play. Um, and a funny thing happened when we were in the recording studio that day. Um, I had invited Andrew to come and say hi. Um, it was one of our last days in the studio and he hadn't kind of been in to say hi yet. And Andrew came in and I was introducing him. I was like, Robbie, this is my husband, Andrew. And Robbie was like, I already know you. And Andrew was like, what? I don't remember. And then Robbie was like, yeah, you played in my band when we were in high school. My Andrew's a drummer, um, not professionally, but he, he drummed a lot as a, as a teen and as a young adult. Um, and, and then switched his, um, profession to, um, material science engineering. It was just really funny. Like Robbie, Robbie remembered Andrew and that they had played together in a band and did like a little, a couple of little gigs. Um, so that was kind of like a, a cute, like a small world moment. It's funny. Like actually this happens kind of frequently because Andrew was a part of the music scene here, um, way before we knew each other and way before I moved to Utah. Um, so it's kind of funny, like people that Andrew knew in high school, I will kind of build independent relationships with them in the music industry. And then we'll kind of realize later, like that they know Andrew too. It's, it's fun and kind of funny. Um, so that's the recording process for the song. And then for Annie's question, um, so, okay. So that is, that kind of answers the first part of your question about production decisions. And then in terms of like, um, which ones to do live, um, 
I was thinking about this and it's hard for me to remember exactly what I was thinking back then, but I think it's more a matter of, I wanted to have a couple of live versions to help me promote the record before the studio versions were finished or out. Um, and so I was trying to think of the whole record, which again is 12 songs, which of the songs would most easily translate to a live version. Um, and breaking room just, it's, it's pretty classic in terms of the chord progressions, um, in terms of how it will translate to different instrumentation. So it felt like an obvious choice to, um, do a live version of just in terms of like functionality and practicality. It just, it, it kind of can live pretty easily either way, which like, you know, the hallowed wide, which, um, I released back in August. Um, it's track one for the record. It, it's a really hard song to do like with fully live instruments. Like when I, when I am putting together my album release show, which I'm doing now and it's going to be sick, it's going to be awesome. And I'd love to tour, but in like a touring situation where I am going to play the hallowed wide, I would, I would need to do it with some uh, backing tracks in order to kind of fill it out the way that it should be. Like it just, it, it won't function that well with all live instruments unless um, unless we had like a full orchestra, you know, it just needs a little bit more oomph where like breaking room feels pretty good with like a simple five piece band. So, um, I think that answers your question there. And then in terms of streaming services, like I might release the live version of breaking room later, but, um, I want to make sure I kind of release the whole album first, just the album feels more important to me, the studio versions. So I want to make sure that I'm kind of leading with those. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Okay. I, I think that there's nothing else that I wanted to tell you guys. That's been a lot and hopefully really personal. If anyone has follow-up questions, let me know. And if you're listening and you want to have input on the next one of these, just make sure you're on my mailing list and in that private Facebook group. Um, you can't be in the group unless you're on the mailing list. So it's only for people who are committed. Um, yeah, join the mailing list, join the group and let me know. I love answering questions. Um, I love hearing what, you know, y'all are thinking. So, okay, that's that. The final chapter in the divide portion of the hallowed wide will be coming out in May. It's one of my favorite songs on the record. Um, it's really kind of epic and heart wrenching and, um, similar to this one and like all of the songs on this record. Um, you know, pretty, pretty personal and pretty, um, you know, heartfelt things that I spend a lot of time thinking about. So I hope you guys are excited about that. I can't wait for you to hear it. And, um, as always, thanks for being here with me. It means so much to me and yeah, love ya. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks for listening to Artifice. Our theme song is As You Are from My Album Masks with artwork and merch designs by Sarah Keel. If you'd like to recommend a professional artist for an interview on the podcast, you can reach me through my website, emilymerrellmusic.com. That's E-M-I-L-Y-M-E-R-R-E-L-L music.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again. Have a great week.